Hi guys, this is Shana and you're listening to Unstoppable, the podcast that takes you from potential to reality. Every week we'll be meeting with entrepreneurs, artists, and others who realize their dreams so they can tell us more about their experiences, the psychology of success, and how you can do the same. Today I am with Theodora, an amazing psychologist and coach that knows a lot about positive psychology. Resilience, the science of resilience, which is amazing. I read your article about apples and resilience, and I must say, I loved it. We will talk about it a little bit more uh, later. So yeah, she will be talking to me about her experiences and how you can overcome um, difficult times and challenges with this psychology of resilience. Welcome, Teodora. Thanks, Shana. Thank you so much for inviting me to uh, to talk to you here and and to talk to our audience as well. This is a really, I think, important topic, especially in this current sort of state of the world that we're living in. So I'm really excited to, to talk to you about this. Thank you so much. I think this is going to be very, very uh, helpful for a lot of people. Can you start by telling us more about yourself, what you're doing exactly in your experiences? Sure, sure, yeah. So like you said, I'm a psychologist. Um, my background's primarily in psychology. Um, I did my master's degree in clinical psychology and a lot of the sort of earlier work that I did in my career was really focused on people with, with mood disorders. So people who were struggling with depression, with anxiety, um, using a number of different talk therapies, which is another way in which we refer to psychotherapy, um, in order to help them work through, through some of these problems and ultimately live a better life, which is of course the ultimate goal I think for all of us. But at the same time, I've always been really uh, passionate about children um, and really focused on, on helping parents help them help their children um, and help their children kind of thrive and, and reach their full potential. So a lot of the work that I'm doing right now is really focused on parenting in the age of technology, which is such a strange, new, sort of unprecedented state that today's generation of parents have found themselves in. Um, and it's something that I've been focusing on for about the past um, six years. Um, I'm currently working with a company that's called LineWise, and I'm their director of community engagement. So I'm their lead online safety and digital wellness expert. Um, a part of my expertise right now is the psychology of technology use. Um, especially when it comes to, to children um, and how we can essentially help them engage with technology in more positive ways. And so a lot of the work that I'm doing right now with LineWise is really focused on educating parents in particular, but really educating the whole community around children, informing them around how children use technology and the types of technology that they use as well and what are some of the, the sort of better and worse ways in which children can, can engage in technology. That's a big challenge today in today's society with all, I mean, everybody has access to a smartphone and everything that's on it. So it's a big, big challenge. And yeah, there's a lot of negative effects from what I can see with social media. Yeah, there's a lot of things that needs to be monitored and that maybe people can get educated on how to use better. So it's not harmful because we have seen a lot of bad things happening in the past few years. A lot of work, I imagine, and a lot of challenges to overcome, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's it's an endless sort of an endless challenge. I don't I don't really think of it as something that I will one day stop doing because I would have achieved my goals. I don't think there is such a thing when it comes to this. I think just the the mere fact that technology is in the form that we have it today is always going to be present. There isn't really such a thing as 
you know, one day we're going to be at that place where technology is going to be as safe and healthy as we need it to be and where we're going to be able to engage with it in as safe and healthy a way as um, we ultimately want to. So it's, it's really a work in progress. And I think it's something that sort of my generation of, you know, psychologists and counselors, as well as, you know, software engineers and AI specialists and, you know, human rights activists, I think we're starting that conversation in a really big way now, but this is really something that that's going to continue for really for the rest of time like a big mission on the on the long run can you define for us uh resilience and the psychology of resilience more precisely sure sure so when we talk about resilience it's it's essentially a trait that you don't really know that you have until you come across some kind of an obstacle in life. So un until you you need to kind of struggle with, with something, you don't really know that you're resilient. And it's really been defined as kind of our ability to bounce back after we've struggled or faltered or failed. Um, and this is kind of the, the very sort of simple bare bones definition that's been put forward by a researcher called Dr. Angela Duckworth, who's at the University of Pennsylvania. And she's really done a lot of research around resilience. So When we talk about the psychology of resilience, first of all, of course, we're interested in, in defining resilience and describing what it actually is. Um, we want to know what are the kind of situations in life in which resilience kind of emerges. Uh, we want to look at people both who are already very, very resilient and kind of see what they're doing. But then we also want to look at the people who maybe struggle with that and learn from the people who are very good at it and, and figure out what are some of the ways in which we can transfer those skills. So some people are very good at it and some people like this uh, specific skill. Do you know what differentiates them? Why someone would be very resilient and someone else would not be resilient enough? Yeah, a, a lot of research has, of course, gone into that as well, because, of course, ultimately, that's the question that we, we want to answer. We want to know what that difference is. Um, and, and we do, to a certain extent, have some sense of uh, kind of where that difference lies a lot of it of course will just have to do with genetics and and just sort of the way people are born so we do find that there's a certain threshold there that you're just kind of born with and and the same is true of a lot of other traits as well when you're talking about extroversion introversion um, talking about things like openness to experience people who tend to be more intuitive or more thinking you know who are tend to just naturally be happier than others so there is um there is definitely a, a certain threshold there that people are born with and then of course it's that nature versus nurture so of course the way that you're raised could have a lot to do with that as well. So what are sort of some of the messages um, that you've received as you were growing up in terms of hardship and in terms of, you know, working through problems, success, self-esteem, you know, all sorts of different things. And then, of course, we do also find that, you know, people need to have the right kind of resources around them in order to be resilient. So it's also not just as simple as I'm born with it or I'm not born with it or, you know, there's a few tips and tricks that I can kind of use and then suddenly I become resilient. A lot of other sort of societal factors um, impact it as well. So your socioeconomic status, of course, what kind of conditions you live in, how much external support um, you receive, your levels of, of education, a lot of other things. So it's a very, it's definitely a very kind of complex and, and complicated cluster of factors that can sort of influence and impact whether somebody is or isn't resilient and sort of the, the extent to which they can be resilient. So it depends on a lot of different factors, which makes sense. Like a lot of things in psychology, it's not only one thing, and it's not as easy as we think to explain. It's always a lot of different things that come together. 
But I remember in your in your article about apples and resilience, you explained that shock and hardship can help develop resilience. So can you tell us more about that? How how is that? Yeah. So uh, you know, as I I mentioned before, there's really no need for resilience until there's hardship and until there's there's struggle. Otherwise, why would we need that skill, right? It would be it would be totally kind of um, irrelevant. You wouldn't really need to be resilient in any way. Which is, of course, not to say that we should sort of go out of our way trying to make life um, difficult because for so many people in the world, life is already incredibly difficult on a daily basis. So we, we don't want to do that, but what we want to do is really make sure that we kind of face life head on and that we don't kind of shy away from from its its challenges because every one of those challenges or those shocks as as I talk about in that article will strengthen that resilience muscle a little bit more. So it's it's just an idea that will hopefully just to have people sort of relate to hardship a little bit differently or kind of relate to struggle a little bit differently. One of the worst things that you can do for resilience is to avoid hardship at every cost or, or avoid struggle at every cost and, and just sort of live in a kind of bubble. You really do have to expose yourself to all sorts of different different challenges that life provides in order to, like I said, really exercise that muscle and really build up your capacity for resilience. So it's like a muscle, like you can train it, you can uh, develop it and make it stronger. Absolutely, yeah. And is it why some people develop post-traumatic growth whereas some others will develop PTSD? Is it what makes the difference? So a lot of kind of the work around this has, has actually also been done by a woman called Esther Perel. She's a couples therapist who's, who's become quite well known for sort of slightly different topics. But I really like how she talks about post-traumatic growth and how she talks about PTSD. And, and there's actually a third group in there that she refers to often, which is really the people who just sort of survive. So they just sort of carry on, they just sort of live. And she is, um, or rather her parents were Holocaust survivors. And, and so she was a part of a family where that was a very constant presence, you know, as many people of her generation did. And, and she was surrounded by a lot of other families within that community who had had that same um, sort of same horrifying life event happen. And so she was starting to notice these differences. She was starting to notice that you did have an overwhelmingly large group of people people who just sort of carried on, they just sort of survived. Then you did have the group who, who did suffer really, really seriously from things like PTSD, depression, anxiety, substance abuse, uh, a lot of other things. But then you did have that very small percentage of people who did actually thrive. And so her curiosity and the curiosity of other psychologists in, the, in this area is, of course, why? You know, that's ultimately always the question, like, what is the difference? And again, unfortunately, there isn't just one very clear-cut answer, as is often the case in psychology. We know that only a small percentage of people will be on both of those extremes. So it does end up sort of being like a bell-shaped curve, which we often see. There's only actually a very small percentage of, for example, the U.S. population at this point is just under 4%, I think, who are suffering from, from PTSD. Of course, we need to take into account that a lot of people may not have been diagnosed, but we do find that a minority of people will be on both ends of, of that spectrum. And I mentioned some of these factors before. It will be things like genetics. It will be things like socioeconomic status, quality of life. Um, quality of social support is also incredibly important because what we often find when we're on that sort of extreme of mental illness is that people oftentimes either themselves will shut themselves off and they will isolate themselves 
or society will sort of shun them and, and will exclude them from, you know, the, the regular sort of normal everyday activities that they once used to be a part of. So that social support and, and the social connection is actually really, really important to making sure that people can actually thrive after they've experienced some kind of trauma and it can a more or less serious type of trauma that doesn't really matter but some of the other kind of really key aspects of that post-traumatic growth are things like flexibility of thinking so what we often find is that people who tend to be very rigid in terms of sort of the ways in which they explain the world around them and see the world around them and the kind of belief system that they have, the more rigid they are, the less likely they are to benefit from things like post-traumatic growth. It's just too difficult for them to see the world really in, in any different way. So they're very rigid. So that's one really key factor. And then the other one really comes from uh, a lot of the research that's been done in positive psychology. So we know that there's a whole sort of list of positive psychology practices that people can engage in. Some of them are things like expressing gratitude on a regular basis, experiencing compassion and self-compassion on a regular basis, um, making sure to appreciate beauty around you, whether it's in art, whether it's in nature, whatever form you you kind of appreciate the most, um, being able to experience the state of awe. So again, social relationships are incredibly important. So we, we do know that there are certain factors in there that can really lead to post-traumatic growth. One of the perhaps key factors that kind of is, is maybe more important than any of the other ones is really being able to find meaning in that kind of post-traumatic period, which again, to an extent, is connected to this idea of being more flexible in terms of our thinking. So we usually find that the worst outcomes tend to occur for people who kind of can't get past the injustice of what happened to them, which we oftentimes see that when, when we look at people who've gone through really, really serious types of trauma, such as, for example, the, the Holocaust that I mentioned earlier, there's a huge amount of injustice that's deeply embedded in their experience. And for people who are not able to get past that idea or that concept, uh, which is a true idea, of course, but who are not able to get past that and shift their perspective into finding meaning in the hardship that they've gone through, they tend to have the worst outcomes when it comes to, to post-traumatic growth. So again, it's a, it's a combination of things. Some of them are fixed, such as socioeconomic status and genetics. But then we do know that there are also a lot of things that, that we as individuals can do in order to try and push people more to that positive side of the spectrum. But there are also, of course, plenty of things that we as a, as a society can do as well to, to help those people who undergo trauma. That is so interesting. Um, everything you said, I, I remember a lot of things about trauma and there's this guy called Boris something, Sterlingak or something like that. I cannot pronounce his name. <laughs> But he talked a lot about post-traumatic growth And he said exactly what you said, that you need a good support system in order to, to overcome these traumas and, and, and to feel better and to develop that resilience. And the flexibility part is, is also really interesting because I've heard about that before. People who are very rigid about the world around them. I'm going to go back to the meaningful part because, of course, the Holocaust, we remember uh, Viktor Frankl, who wrote a book about how to find meaning in, in these awful circumstances. And he said that's what kept him alive and that's how he could survive uh, this and actually thrive after that. He got a pretty good life. I don't know how we define good life, but he could survive and, and live. So I, I see how all of these things are really, really important. 
And I guess you can learn how to develop that even if you're not born with the skills, I guess you can learn them. But is it the same for flexibility, for example? If you are wired to see things a certain way, can you actually develop your neural connections, your brain to, to be able to see things differently and be more flexible? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's it's a very difficult nut to crack, so so to speak, because, of course, people who do have a very sort of rigid way of thinking often like the fact that they have a very rigid way of thinking. And so, for example, if you look at a lot of the the polarity in political views, not just here in the U.S., but even in France, where you're from, and Serbia, where I'm from, and a lot of other countries in the world, we see this polarization and this kind of extremism of people's views. And, you know, when it comes to, to things like politics, when it comes to really any kind of outlook you have on life and whatever your sort of view and opinion is of that, that really helps to inform who you are as a person and kind of how you see yourself, you know, and and some people will like to wear certain colors to signify that, you will carry certain flags or you will dress in certain ways, you will speak in certain ways. It's really all to do with your identity. And so when it comes to rigid thinking, it's often very difficult to sort of convince that person that the rigidity is not good or that the rigidity is harmful or or hurtful to them because rigidity also we have to remember it has its own benefits as well it keeps life simpler because you're much clearer on what you do and don't like and what you do and don't believe in and so if you think about a very uh, you know it's almost like a like a kind of military army type of approach to life or any other really kind of rigid hierarchies like that right it's it's often an issue of survival ultimately when you look at groups like that and so of course they benefit from having very clear very very rigid hierarchies and systems because there's no confusion then you know exactly what to do in which in which situation often it is life or death so so that rigidity is absolutely necessary but of course when we look at everyday life you know to a great extent that need for that level of rigidity really isn't there and and oftentimes it can kind of cross that line into being unhelpful the unfortunate thing is is that a lot of the times people who do have such rigid systems of belief don't really realize how harmful they are until they encounter some of these these types of experiences like serious types of types of trauma and sometimes even in the moment they don't quite realize it it's really in that aftermath where they're struggling because they're not able to see things from a different perspective so we call that perspective taking they really struggle in order to to overcome that so that's a really important thing to keep in mind if you happen to have a family member who is like that all the way to you know, if you're a psychotherapist or a coach who's working with someone who is very rigid, it's very important to approach that from a, a compassionate perspective and to really understand that this person benefits from their rigidity in a lot of ways. And it's probably also a kind of protective mechanism for them as well. So before we go in and, and sort of try to, to change them, we want to really accept where they're at in that moment and just kind of explore the pros and cons of having that kind of a a belief system. And sometimes you will find that people will be able to change and they will be able to expand their belief system and they will be able to take on different perspectives. But, you know, sometimes you'll be gravely disappointed. And so I think it's, it's really important to also keep that for us who are on the other end of that to keep that kind of our own flexibility, I guess, and, and to keep an open mind in terms of we can do 
as much as we can, but really ultimately it's down to every single individual to make their own decision around um, what they will or, or won't believe in. Yeah, totally. That's really, really interesting because the human mind is so complex. We're still trying to understand it as a society, like we're still doing a lot of experiments and studying it and psychologists. We discovered so many things. There was a lot of improvement, which is amazing, but I feel like we still have a lot to uncover and discover and understand. The human mind is, we can achieve a lot of a lot of things and that flexibility we're talking about or that improvement or or even we hear stories about people who who had like complicated and hard moments to pass, very, very hard situations in life, really difficult things to leave. And and you think it's it's all over and you think there's no there's no hope and and it's how are they gonna overcome that? How are they gonna get to the other side of it? But somehow they do. So that really proves that the human mind can do amazing things. If only we can direct it in the right direction, I feel like. If we have the right tools and the right people around us and, and, and the motivation, I, I'm guessing, also to be able to, to get there. I feel like it's also related to success. I'm really interested in that resilience, success, connection relationship. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Sure, yeah. So I think it, it, it depends a lot really on sort of how you define success and you know what success means. So to me, I actually think of resilience as a marker for success. So if you're, if you're able to be um, resilient, you are already successful in life, really regardless of any of the other markers that you might be thinking about. And it's really that age old saying um, that goes something like, it doesn't really matter how many times you fall down. It's, it's really all about how many times you kind of get back up. And, and that's exactly what, what resilience is about. It's really that recovery from the failure or from a mistake. And, you know, obviously achieving success of any kind in any area of life, you know, is difficult for most people it's it's difficult and it's challenging and we should definitely take that time to to really feel proud of ourselves and to sort of give ourselves that pat on the back for doing it but nothing in life is is sort of constant and none of it is really consistent oftentimes it isn't and so for me then the more important question is really how do we sort of or will rather will we be able to maintain that success and will we be able to restore it in case we lose it and that's what resilience is really it's about okay that's great you're successful now but if you know if you turn a corner and something goes wrong like things go wrong all the time we've definitely seen that over the past couple of years your success won't really be relevant in that point because there will be a lot of external sources that will be impacting it and you could have tried as hard as you wanted to and have been as successful as you wanted to known all the right people learned all the right skills had all the money in the world that you needed all of the other conditions could have been perfect but you know a global pandemic happens or you know a major um, sort of war breaks out and everything that you've worked towards is just sort of wiped out and you know that it, it sounds very extreme but things like that happen to people all the time unfortunately on smaller or larger scales so that's where that skill of resilience is really a lot more important than sort of success in itself because the question is you know, are you going to be able to handle it when that success isn't there? Or if for whatever reason it disappears, will you be able to to kind of bounce back from that? And and that's what resilience is all about. Would you say that's what differentiates people who, because we see people who go through and keep going until they reach their goals, no matter what, no matter what hardships they might encounter. And we see people who might try, but might give up very, very quickly too. So is resilience a big, big part of that? 
resilience is a big part of that. And actually, when we're when we're talking about this particular issue, we kind of enter the realm of what we refer to as grit. Um, and I'd already mentioned Dr. Dr. Duckworth, who's also the lead researcher really in this whole area of psychology, the psychology of grit, which is very closely linked to to resilience and to a growth mindset and to positive psychology, they're all sort of interlinked. But the way she has has at least defined grit is a, a kind of a passion and a perseverance for long-term goals, right? So there's, there's a lot of sort of different components of that you can look at. What she has also said is that the really important thing is that to begin with, you kind of know what you're good at to start off with. You know, if you suddenly decide that you want to practice, I don't know, golf, and, and you're just really not good at it. No amount of practice will really get you to where you want to go. Um, so you're just going to feel like a failure, but in, in a very unfair way, you know, the odds are really, really stacked against you. So to begin with, it's, it's important that you are, that you're dealing with something that you're quite good at, sort of to, to begin with, that you can work from as a, as a kind of foundation. But then the sort of the, the four more specific characteristics that she's identified of people who are gritty, who will persevere is that for one, they're really interested in what they're doing. So again, if you're pushing yourself in a direction of something that's not all that interesting to you, it's highly unlikely that you're going to be able to, to persevere and, and really reach kind of success or, or the ultimate goal. The other one is that you practice it over and over again, what, you know, whatever it happens to be. So it's a little bit like, you know, with fitness, you know, you don't go to the gym one time and then you go, okay, I'm good. Now I'm fit and I'm healthy. Yeah, it has to be, it's a, you know, lather, rinse, repeat, lather, rinse, repeat. You have to, you know, you keep going and you keep going and you keep going. So that's really important. Another one is, again, that meaning comes back in so that you have a purpose and a meaning. If there's no purpose or meaning to that particular thing that you're doing, it's going to be very hard for you to, to carry it on for a longer period of time. In the short term, you can maybe find some reason or some excuse to do it, but ultimately it will be very difficult if you don't have a, a sense of meaning or, or, or a really purpose behind what you're doing. Doing. And then the fourth and final trade is that people who are greedy tend to feel or experience a lot of uh, sort of hope and optimism in the future as well. So that plays a big role there. The one final thing that I would also add, and I think this is something that Dr. Duckworth has also added sort of over the past few years that she's been doing research on this since she initially started, is that I think it's also important that you know when to quit because it's incredibly important to get a good sense of, okay, now I'm at a position where, you know, I've tried everything I could, and it turns out that actually this isn't quite what I thought it was originally going to be. Perhaps my effort and my time and my passion could maybe be better spent somewhere else because I don't actually, for example, find a lot of meaning in this particular thing. It's incredibly important that you are able to admit that to yourself and that you're able to say that, that you're able to kind of call it quits at the right time and then move on to, to something else. Because again, ultimately, to me at least, as a psychologist talking about this, that isn't a, fa a failure, that's actually a success. The ability to really know where, where your limits are and, and how to best sort of spend and invest your time. That's super interesting because most of the time we, we hear people say never give up, never quit, just keep pushing, keep going. And before I thought the same thing. And the more I look into it, the more I start to realize that maybe sometimes it's better to just stop and go into something else. But it's a big process because in society's mind, when you just, when you quit, you're a quitter, you're a loser. That That's how they define you. So how do you handle that? How do you know when it's time for you to move forward and to just stop whatever it is you're trying to do, when do you know that it's the right time and that you don't give up too quick? 
So I think I think one sort of way that we can orient ourselves towards that question is to think about these these characteristics that have been identified as kind of being key to, to grit. So thinking in terms of the meaning and purpose behind what you're doing, thinking kind of in terms of how much it interests you, you know, whatever sort of whatever it is that you're doing, how able are you to do it over and over and over and over again. One of the things that I personally have always admired looking at athletes, for example, is this second skill. So the ability to practice over and over and over and over again, and to obviously not lose that sense of purpose and meaning. It's still very much there because also their interest is also there. And of course, they have a lot of that optimism and hope as they're looking forward to their next match, their next game, the next title, the next award, what you know, whatever it is that, that they're going to get. These people are obviously extremes, right? So not everybody on this planet is, is a top athlete. Not all of us can be expected to, to have those same skills. But it's very important to be realistic with ourselves um, in terms of that and, and really identify those activities and interests and, and hobbies and, and skills and areas where we know that even if we're not quite there yet, we do have enough of an interest in that and there's enough of a meaning in there to really give it our absolutely best shot. I think honesty is, is probably the most important thing there to really be honest with yourself in terms of did I give this my you know absolute everything do I find meaning in this is this really interesting to me do I actually have optimism when, when I think about my future as what you know whatever it is that you're that you're trying to practice um, and if you find that you don't really see it there but you see it somewhere else then that's that definite sign that you need to move on and you know I've, I've seen this happen often for example with with parents who Feel very strongly about their children playing a musical instrument for example and you know oftentimes you'll see that parents will have again talk about being rigid they'll have one or two ideas for the instruments they want their kids to play you know and it's typically either the piano or the violin i mean those are sort of the classics and i've seen this happen where, where parents have chosen the instrument for their child their child tried really really hard which again is 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 really very resilient and gritty of them to really kind of push it as far as they could even though from the very start it was clear that they for example wanted to play the trumpet and the trumpet was really their passion so that expression of grit was actually there it was just in a sort of pointing in a different direction that the parents weren't quite so happy with. And then eventually, once the parent realizes that, okay, this is way too difficult for all of us, they recognize that, okay, we need to switch up. And then when the child is is given the opportunity to, in fact, play the instrument they were always interested in, they carry it all the way through, you know, as, as far as they possibly can. So you can see that interest factor is so foundational to kind of how grit can can play out, which is why honesty is really important for us, just self-honesty once we're kind of uh, independent adults. But when you're looking at that kind of family setting, it's really important for parents to be very open and honest about that because ultimately, especially when kids are younger, you want that basic skill to develop the instrument itself isn't even that relevant when they're that little. You want them to practice things like perseverance and be motivated and work hard and you know be able to practice and repeat and be self-disciplined and all these different things. So it's important that we follow their interests when they're very young. And when we get older, it's important that we're able to identify those interests in, in ourselves really, to set also ourselves up for success. I love this concept because with kids, I feel like it's so natural to, to know they know what they like. They know what they don't like. It's really natural. They don't second guess themselves. It's just natural. 
But I feel like the more we grow up, society tells us more or less what we should be doing or not be doing. And at some point we forget what we want to be doing, like what we truly want. And I love watching videos, you know, like when we see really old people that talk about their lives and they say whatever they're happy about how they live their lives or if they have regrets. And I noticed that a lot of people express regrets about their lives because they didn't do the thing that they truly wanted to do. But the problem is they didn't know at that time that what they wanted wasn't what they were doing because they were just, they could not listen to their own voices because everybody speaks for, for us, I feel like in society. In your experience, have you seen a lot of people who, who are lost in, the, in between all of that and who do not follow the true purpose, who don't find meaning? And if so, how can you redirect them in the right direction? I've actually, it's, it's a really interesting um, question because I've never thought about it before, but sort of generally when I think about it, both in terms of, you know, so far in my life, the people who I've come across personally and, and professionally, I don't think I met too many people who, who were sort of completely resigned to the idea that a particular dream or ambition is over and they kind of miss their opportunity and it's like a huge regret. I think very, very few. There may be a, a few little things like, oh, I wish I'd picked up that instrument when I was younger. I wish I'd learned that other language. Like it, it'll, it'll be things like that. But I've very rarely seen those very big kind of regrets like, oh, the whole direction of my life or should have changed in, in that particular moment. So I think on the whole, probably, I guess for the most part, I've, I've met some pretty resilient people. I think generally people actually are a lot more resilient than we give them credit for. I think people are, for the most part, are pretty good at kind of working with what they've got in that moment. I think over the past five to 10 years, again, as information becomes a lot more widespread, as the world seems to be more and more sort of unstable in, in certain ways, change happens, you know, very, very quickly and things shift up very fast. I do think in a lot of ways people have been good about kind of, like I said, working with what they've got and, and trying to adapt sort of as, as quickly as they possibly can. Some of the exceptions that I can think of, of course, are some of the, the, the clients that I've worked with who've had a mental illness, who, who were maybe especially sort of depressed, because oftentimes what we do find in those instances is, is that people who are depressed do have a very negative outlook on life everything is kind of seen through this filter of negativity and so if you were to ask them about regrets they, I mean they could talk your ear off all day everything seems to be a regret um, when, you know when they think about their past even when they think about their present so our I think our, our levels of, of mental health and well-being also have a huge impact on how many regrets do we see in our lives and do we see any at all in fact it can often make the difference between seeing things through that negative sort of filter and on the other hand still realizing that even if it's like a really tiny tiny small sense of meaning it's it's still there for you it can be that morning walk that you take or if you have a pet you know you make sure that you feed them every day or if you have a plant it's watering them every day it's the tiniest sense of of meaning but it's really everywhere around us in so many things that we do it can be something as simple as cleaning your apartment you know the meaning behind that is that you get to live in a nice space and it doesn't have to be much more complicated than that so i think uh, you know outside of kind of the clinical population so people who struggle with mental health issues i think generally humans are very good Good at being pretty resilient and really being able to to, to find meaning in, in some of the smallest things and that's an incredibly important skill to have and to really strengthen if you feel that that you're not that great at it yet
That makes a lot of sense. So we talked about so meaning, meaning in life, of course, resilience. And we also talked about before believing in yourself is going to help you start a project and keep following through and do what you want to do. So what makes a person believe in herself? How do you develop and use that self-esteem and self-confidence? So I, I would say there's two aspects to that that are very closely connected. One is a sense of mastery and the other one is a sense of optimism. Um, and what I mean by mastery is that you know that you can do things and you know that you can do hard things. Even if you don't know how to do them, you know that you can figure it out or you know that you can reach out to friends or family or other resources um, that are in your environment and you can actually kind of figure it out. And it's really crucial to developing that sense of, of sort of self-worth and belief in oneself, which is why I always, again, going back to parents and families, I always advise parents as early as possible to really start letting their children have those independent experiences, let them do things on their own that they will make a mistake with, that they will fail with, because at that point they will learn that they can do things and they can fail at them and then they're going to have to figure them out. And again, every time they have that experience, it's yet another sort of reference experience that they have for when they get older that will give them a better sense of of sort of optimism and self-worth and self-belief and and just a kind of that inner felt sense of I can do difficult things and I can figure them out and this is something that another very well-known researcher called Dr. Martin Seligman has written a lot about he's considered to be the father of positive psychology if not one of them he's often talked about that connection between the importance of mastery and optimism the fact that kind of experiencing life with all of its ups and downs and having a sense of your own ability to overcome those obstacles then gradually leads you to becoming more optimistic and and that doesn't mean then that i you know i believe everything will just magically be okay that's usually how optimism is perceived that's not what it is it just means that i know that i can deal with difficult things even when i don't know what the outcome ultimately is going to be of those things. So that's really the, the, the main thing. It's really placing that emphasis on being sort of a proactive member of this world um, and whatever community that you're in, really going out there, putting yourself out there and learning from any of the mistakes that you make, because that will give you that belief in yourself that even when you don't quite know how you know, what the outcome is going to look like and, and what exactly to do to achieve that outcome, you will be able to tap into resources around you in order to help you get to that place where you want to go. I really love that. And do you have any tips or exercises that people can do to develop self-confidence and self-esteem? Yeah, so, so the one that I think, you know, our listeners can do immediately, uh, kind of as they're, they're listening to us talking about this, is to really think about a time when they struggled. It didn't have to be a huge struggle. It, it can be something, something smaller as well. But to think back to how they emerged from that struggle. And again, it, it can be a big thing, it can be a small thing, it doesn't really matter, but it's really to remind yourself of your past successes. And that is always my, my core tip. And, and when I work with people, that's always something that I encourage them to, to do, to really think about as many of those reference experiences as possible of when they were able to overcome something or when they were able to figure out something. Because again, it's really all about accepting those challenges that come your way. That would probably be sort of the, the second tip, um, which is something that we often actively have to work on every day. But it's really to make sure that you're, that you're not sort of shying away from 
whatever the the demands are of, of your everyday life and it's always easier to start really really small so it can be something really really tiny if it's you know I want to go out for a walk every day for five minutes like literally go downstairs go outside turn around go back inside that's already more than you otherwise would have done so it, you know it can start very very small but it's important that you start and it's important that you actually um, sort of do it and I think on a on a more philosophical level I think it's it's important to remember that sort of at the very core we're all the same we're all human beings who are capable of experiencing joy of experiencing fear all of the emotions and we're all sort of worthy of having an opportunity to live a good life however you would define that because you know we all ended up here on this planet and most of us don't know how or why and you know in a lot of instances it was just sort of pure dumb luck but we're here and so we we all deserve to have that chance to sort of make out of it the best thing that we possibly can so i think it's important you know as abstract and like i said sort of philosophical as that might sound i think that's uh, the sort of basic level of that core sort of sense of self-worth that you inherently deserve to try your best, if nothing else. And then from there to kind of further build up that self-belief and, and self-esteem, you have to then live that life um, as much as you can. You have to be an active participant in it. You can't kind of remain behind closed doors and wonder, why don't I have more self-esteem? You can't develop self-esteem really in, in that kind of a sense without what I mentioned before, which is that sense of mastery. You have to actually witness yourself going out there, doing things and actually either from the start being successful at them or failing at them and then kind of figuring out how to overcome those obstacles. Do you have any final word, final advice for all those who are listening to us on how to approach life in the best possible way? So, I mean, there, there's many, um, like I said before, there are many practices that come from positive psychology that can really help for that. And, and I know that different people enjoy doing different ones depending on their daily habits and their temperament and their personality and so on. I think one of the, the core ones for me or maybe two, they're, they're sort of interconnected, is really to define as many things as you possibly can that give you a sense of joy and that help you experience a sense of awe. And awe is basically defined as experiencing something that is greater than yourself. So some people find that in nature, other people find that in art, other people find that in religion and or spirituality. So wherever that comes from, it doesn't matter, but whatever gives you that sense of joy and whatever gives you that sense of awe, to really try and kind of incorporate that into your daily life as, as much as possible. So again, it can be a walk in a rainforest or it can be just watering your little plant, you know, that's on your desk, or it can be going to a museum or it can be, you know, using a, a coloring book. It doesn't matter what it is and it doesn't have to be a big grand sort of gesture or activity that you engage with, but whatever it is that you can pull from, around you and there will be plenty of things we just often don't look for them try to incorporate that in your life as as much as possible and and use it use it when you're in a good mood but also have a sort of list of things that you can do when you're not in a great mood so that that's kind of almost like your little toolbox of, of resources so that if you're not feeling great you know that there's a particular video or a particular show that you really like to watch because it will lift your spirits or you know that there's a book that you really like to read or music you like to listen to or a particular place in your in your city where you like to go or there's a person you like to talk to in those moments whatever it is just really know what those things are that bring you joy and bring you into that state of awe and just incorporate them as much as possible to sort of just generally increase your your life satisfaction and your well-being on a daily basis thank you so much that was 
super, super interesting. We learned a lot. I'm gonna be putting the link to your website on the description so people can, can, can go there and find a lot of resources. You wrote a lot of articles that are very interesting and very helpful. So uh, I'll be putting that there. And thank you so much for your time and everything you, you, you taught us. Of course. Thanks so much for having me again, Shana.